0: Last September, um, I had a first experience for me, it was my first uh, cross-cultural wedding, as in I was in a different culture, I went to Bulgaria in September uh, to marry um, a girl, not, not my wife, I've got a wife. <laughs> Rephrase that. This is off note, so you have to be careful about that. Um, to marry a girl who I've known since she was very, very uh, small. She's always small, she is small. Since she was very young, uh, she's the pastor's daughter at the church in Varna. So I've known her for like probably 20 years or something. So it was a great thrill to marry her. Her name's Muki, Mikaela. To a lad called Teo, who I'd only met once, but I'd heard a lot about. Teo's father uh, is a pastor very high up in the denomination in Bulgaria. When Teo was 14 years of age, he was kidnapped by the mafia and he was taken out of his home and he was taken and put in the back of a van as a 14-year-old. If you've got teenagers; you can imagine what this is like. He was taken, he was put in the back of a van. He was bound and gagged and gaffer tape on his mouth, etc. And he was taken to a, a house that he didn't know where it was, he didn't know what, where, it, where on earth it was. And he was kept there for weeks and weeks and weeks. Somehow the people that took him believed that because his, pastor, his dad was a pastor quite high up in the denomination, that he had money. The bit they're missing is he was a pastor, all right, let me just they're a little, they're not, they weren't the brightest mafia. Anyway, anyway, Tao was released after several months. And then a year later was kidnapped again by the same gang. And as I met this guy and talked to him a little bit about what it was like. So that from the age of 15, he was so traumatised that he left the country. And he's lived in different countries around Europe all the time. And now he's got married and he's back in Bulgaria. And as I sat and listened to him, I thought, what an incredible trauma that must have been. To be taken out of your home, to be thrown in the back of a van, to be driven away to nowhere, not knowing whether you're going to live or whether you're going to die. And then at the end of it all, to be so traumatized by that, that you can't bear the thought of living in your own country, so you live in another country. You learn a different language. You learn different customs. You learn different ways of doing things. Incredibly traumatic experience. That's what happened to Daniel. Daniel. Many thousands of years ago, not only Daniel, but Daniel's three friends that we're going to look at over these next six weeks. If you've got a Bible, the book of Daniel, chapter 1. And today, because I'm opening up the series, there's a lot of introduction stuff, but hopefully there's some stuff that we're going to get our teeth into as well. Daniel chapter 1 says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia, and he put in the treasure and put in the treasure house of his God. To give you some background here, there's going to be a map that comes up. This is some geographical background. So we're talking about the Babylonian Empire in 606, 605, 606 BC, which is when we're picking the story up. Literally, was massive. Parts of Turkey, Iraq, Syria, Israel, Jordan, Egypt, into Iran, into Afghanistan, up into the other stands. And there's another stands up there as well, isn't there? And it was a massive, massive empire, the biggest superpower of the day. Now if you look at the next one, which is a chart, a historical background, the next slide. What we've basically got is we've got, in the book of Daniel, we're looking at the Neo-Babylonian period, the Median period and the Persian period. We're going to be travelling through four rulers, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, Darius and Cyrus. Some key events, the exile that we're looking at today. We're looking at the writing on the wall, which you can see up there. We're going to be looking at the, uh, today we're going to be looking at the food, the vegetables and all that. We're going to be looking at the lion's den. There's some bones there left from the lions. We kept the skulls out of it, we thought. With the kids in at the next session, that wouldn't be great. We've got the gold statue. So we're going to look at some of these things over the next few weeks. What I want you to understand here is that the way it's written in your Bible is not the way it happened in real time. Okay, Daniel was taken into Babylon as a 15 or 16 year old. He spent 70 years in exile. Died at around the age of 85. He wrote the book of Daniel. Definitely it was him that wrote it later on in his life. The lion's den thing came much later in his life. He wasn't a young man when he was put in the lion's den. We see other prophets prophets and prophecies that were around the same time. We've got Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah, Haggai. You've got other people like Micah and Habakkuk. They were all around the same kind of time. This gives you some kind of framework that what we're going to look at. It's written in two languages. It's written in Aramaic, part of it, because it was meant for the Gentiles, the non-Jews, and it was also written in Hebrew. It was meant for the Jews. The theological background to this book is very exciting. There are four big key themes in the book of Daniel. Number one, the sovereignty of God. So when Jeremiah prophesied that because of Israel's unfaithfulness and the, the kingdom of If you like, the Jewish kingdom was split into north and south. And uh, the northern part, the southern part was destroyed. And the other part was taken away into captivity. And Jeremiah wrote about that. But the the prophet Habakkuk, and for those of you that are here last week, Jonathan Bentley, who spoke last week, he spoke about Habakkuk. Well, that bit was written around this time where Habakkuk says, God, you've got to do something. And so God raised up the Babylonians to take the Jews into captivity. And Habakkuk says, not that, God. You've got to do something, but not that. And so there's something going on here about the sovereignty of God. You see, it says, and this is hard to get your head around. It says, in the third year, of the reign of Jehoiakim, Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem, and the Lord delivered Jehoiakim into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. And we're going to see over the next few weeks that God is sovereign even when we don't understand what he's doing. Amen? And God is sovereign over your life, even when you don't have a clue what God is doing. Sovereignty of God is a big theme. The power of prayer is a massive theme. We're going to look at that in later weeks. The reality of living in Babylon is a huge theme and we're going, to, we're going to get to grips with that today. And we're also going to look at the reality of the end times, the second coming, all of this kind of stuff. In New Testament prophecy, Daniel is the book which is referred to more than any other Old Testament book when it comes to the end times. And we're going to look at the end times right at the end of this series on July the 18th, unless the Lord has come first. Then I won't have to do all the work for it. So please, you can come on the 17th. That's fine. 16th is my birthday, so we'll leave that day. So we're going to look at a closer look at what it was like for Daniel and his friends to live in exile. So let's pick it back up in verse 3. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Now, Daniel and the Bible often refer to Babylon, and you might see it in your scriptures somewhere, different translations. They use a word called Shinar. And uh, if you've ever come across the word Shinar, it basically is Babylon. But it's more than just a geographical place, it refers to a place which is hostile to God and faith in God. That's what it really means. It refers to a place where there's a dream of one world. Where that one world is uh, run by a common set of social values without reference to God. That's what Babylon, Shinar means. And that's where Daniel is taken. And we all live in Shinar, don't we? We are deep in Shinar. We're right in it. We live in a world which wants to order itself without reference to God. It's not a geographical place, it's a place. It's a place. And that's where we are. The question is, do we have what it takes? Do we have the faith that it takes to live out the life of God right in the middle of Shinar, of Babylon? Now what does Babylon or Shinar try to do to us? Well, it tries to do what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. And when you read it from the J.B. Phillips version of it, paraphrase, he says it like this, Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mould. It was the thrust of what Pete was saying in his rap. You know that you're in this cultural thing where it's trying to squeeze you into its mould. A conformer is someone who is controlled by the pressures outside of them. A transformer is someone who's controlled by the passions inside of them. Isn't that right? And the big challenge for you and I, and I'll tell you what, our culture is so strong when it comes to this. The media, the culture, our worldview, philosophers, Everything around us is so strong. It's trying to squeeze you into a mould. But we want to be like Daniel, don't we? Where we have faith that says, you know I'm not going to let you squeeze me into a mould. In fact, I'm going to transform the culture, not allow the culture to transform me. Now look at how they tried to do it. In verse 6, among these were some from Judah. So you've got Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. So Daniel was called Belteshazzar, Hananiah, Shadrach, Mishael, Meshach, and Azariah, Abednego. So we know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, don't we? But they're all a mishmash of names. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are all Hebrew names. They're Jewish names. And the Babylonians said, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to strip you of your name. We're going to change your identity. Is the first thing that we're going to do. You remember a few weeks ago, or a few months ago, we looked at the book of Ephesians. you remember? Incredibly important. Our identity is so important. So Daniel, the the name Daniel means God is my judge. But Belteshazzar, his new name, means Bel protects my life. Bel was a Babylonian God. So he says, you used to be God is your judge, but now this other God will protect your life. It's trying to strip away the core identity of who he is. Hananiah means the Lord shows grace. But Shadrach means command of Aku, which was a moon god. Mishael means who is like God. But Meshach means who is as Aku, the moon god, is. Azariah means the Lord is my help. But Abednego means a servant of Nebo. Again, another god, another Babylonian god, not the true god. And what they're trying to do is to strip these guys of their identity. And then they go on to say, now you are going to learn the language, you've got to learn the customs, you've got to learn the rituals, you've got to eat the food and you've got to sing the songs. And it's during this period of exile... That is a very famous psalm is written. And a band in the 70s, some of you remember, uh, set this to music. Do you remember it? Go on in. By the rivers of Babylon. You can do it, I can do it. Where we sat down. Oh, where we remembered Zion. Yep, remember that? That was taken from a psalm straight out of this period. Where they were in exile... They were away from their home and they said, how can we sing songs while we're in exile? And they'd so stripped them of their identity and their dignity and their value that they could no longer sing the songs that they used to sing when they were home. Now I introduced this morning by talking about uh, Teo in Bulgaria. Because of my time out there, I understand a little bit about what it feels like for this to happen to a culture You know, the uh, Bulgarians were taken over as a nation along with many other countries around this part of the world uh, by the Ottoman Empire, the Turkish Empire, and for 500 years they were oppressed. And I've been all around different parts of Bulgaria and seen the effect of this. And over 500 years, they tried to stamp out not only their identity, but their language, uh, their culture, their religion, everything. They used to go into villages at the height of it. They used to take little children, little boys, and they trained them up to be soldiers to send them back to their own villages to kill all of the people in the villages. So deeply evil was that ethnic cleansing. And just south of um, Bulgaria, there's a place called the Rila Monastery, which is a beautiful place, right in the mountains, in the little kind of, a, you can very difficult to get to. But there's still a working monastery there, where at the height of this, when they were trying to stamp out all Christianity, they would take some of the young lads who were, were going to become priests, and they would keep them uh, in, hidden in this monastery. And they reckoned that, that one monastery saved Christianity in a whole nation. Isn't that amazing? Because they were trying to stamp it out. And they tried to do what the Babylonians were trying to do to these three guys. We will strip you of your identity. We will strip you of your dignity. We will make you become like us. But how many of you know that didn't happen? That didn't happen. And there are two applications that I want us to look at this morning from this whole idea of being in exile. And the first one is really important. And I don't believe that you're going to get this outside of Revelation. Okay? Not the book of Revelation, but Revelation of the Holy Spirit. And I want you to listen to this. Few of us ever get to live in our first choice world. Few of us ever get to live in our first choice world where everything in your life is exactly as you'd want it to be. In fact, I want to suggest nobody gets to live like that. I wonder how many times Daniel woke up and said, when he was in Babylon, I never thought my life would end up like this. I wonder how many times he woke up and said, this is not how it was meant to be, God. This is not in the script. I'm meant to be in Jerusalem. I'm meant to be at university in Jerusalem with my family, eating the food that's our food, singing the songs that's our songs, marrying a Jewish girl. Oh, that's how it's meant to be. It was never meant to be. like. I wonder how many of us identify with that. Few of us, if any of us, ever get to live our first choice world. I wonder if you've ever woken up thinking, God, how did I end up here? How did I end up in this world? job how did I end up in this marriage how did I end up in this health situation how did I end up in this relationship situation few of us ever get to live in our first choice world you see we all live in exile we live in exile because life doesn't work out in the way that we wanted it to that's one way but we also live in exile because we live on earth and we're meant to be citizens of heaven so if you're a Christian, you're in exile anyway. Even if your life is perfect right now, we're in exile, aren't we? Because we're not citizens of this world, we're citizens of heaven. And even if we live in the world, and we understand we're citizens of heaven, we live out our faith in Babylon, not in Jerusalem. We live in Shinar, not in the city of God. We live in the real world, don't we? And the Bible says we are to be in the world, but not of the world and that's what we're going to look at this morning and I want to just pause for a minute and I want to pray for you because I just suggest and I kind of feel stirred this morning and as I've been preparing this that it may be that some of you today are saying do you know what I wake up right now nearly every day and saying God how did my life end up like this perhaps you're in a really difficult job and you're feeling squeezed and you're feeling pressured perhaps you've lost your job Perhaps you're in a situation where you have a health issue and you think, how did this ever happen? Or a relationship issue or something like that. And you are feeling in exile and you're feeling far from home. I want to just pray for you for a minute. Could we, could we pause? Could we just pray? Just before we move on and look at what faith looks like, I want to just pause and just ask the Holy Spirit just to come and to be close to you today. You're going to discover some amazing things as we go through this chapter together. You're going to discover that God shows up in an amazing way right in the middle of your exile. But I want to just pray for you right now. So if this morning that you would say, do you know what? I feel like I'm in exile. I've ended up in a place and I don't know how I got here. And it may not be a whole life, but it's part of your life and you need God, and you need God to be close to you, you need God to speak to you, then just put your hand up right now. I just want to pray for you this morning. Amen. Father, God, I just want to pray for these folks this morning that are just responding to you. God, I want to pray that you will draw really close to them. And that in their exile, they would know that there is nowhere that they can be that you're not. God, your word says, if we go to the far sides of the earth, you're there. If we go to the highest heights, you're there. The deepest depths, you're there. Nowhere can we go to flee from your presence. So God, would you be with them today? Right at the start of this series, would you encourage them and strengthen them? And God, in their exile, I pray that you would bring them a song of joy again. Pray that their harps that have been hung upon the willows would come down and that you would bring back a song of deliverance and of redemption and of salvation, I pray. In their lives, Lord God, let their exile become a place of testimony to you about what you do in them and what you do through them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The second application, so few of us, if any of us, ever get to live in our first choice world. The second application of this, all of us have a choice about what kind of faith we're going to have. Faith, what does it look like? What does a faith that has what it takes look like? We're going to look at just five things this morning from the life of Daniel. Number one, I think a faith that has what it takes understands who's God and who's not You know, our book of the month um, this month is a book that I've just finished reading called by John Ortberg. And I've got to be honest, I'm a real John Ortberg fan. I think he's one of the best Bible teachers in the world. But when I looked at the title, I didn't like the look of the title. The title is Me, the Me I Want to Be. And I hate all that kind of stuff right now about becoming a better you and aren't you so fantastic and wonderful and all that stuff. But then I looked at underneath, it says, Becoming God's Best Version of You. And I've read the book, and it's a brilliant book. I'd really, really encourage you to read it. Very practical, very thought-provoking. Looking at what it means to let the Spirit of God flow within you in such a way so that you become the version of you that God dreams about. So this isn't become about you become what you want to be. This is about you becoming what God dreams that you will become. And I want to read something to you um, from one of the chapters. So it's available in the coffee shop. Uh, you can order it uh, after the service if you want. It's a great summer read. I really encourage you uh, to get it. But this is what he says in one of the chapters. And listen, if you're a parent, you'll identify with this, I'm sure. It's a scary day when parents place their newborn child in a car seat for that child's first day out into the world. As they head down the road, the fragility of life becomes very real. Do you know when the next scary day with your child in the car is? 16 years later, 17 in our case, now you're handing over the keys. They are moving from the passenger's seat to the driver's seat. Up until then, you have been driving. You chose the destination route and speed. The person behind the wheel is the one in control. We live in a neighbourhood with streets that go around in circles, and wherever I'm going, even if it's three blocks away, he says, whatever route I take, someone in my family will critique it. Why are you going this way? This is the long way. You should have gone the other way. I have to tell them, this car is my car. These keys are my keys. This way is my way. I live in a family, he says, where everybody wants to drive. Many people find Jesus pretty handy to have in the passenger seat when they require his services. Jesus, I have a health problem and I need your help. Something hard is going on at work and I like it to be different. I'm feeling anxious and I want you to give me peace of mind. I'm feeling sad and I like a little hope. I'm facing death and I want to make sure I'm going to heaven. But these people are not so sure that they want Jesus driving. Because if Jesus is behind the wheel, they are not in control anymore. If he is driving, they are not in charge of their wallet anymore. They no longer can simply say, I'll give when I feel generous. But I reserve the right to keep what I want. Because now it's Jesus' money, not theirs. When I let Jesus drive, I am no longer in charge of my ego. I no longer have the right to satisfy every self-centered ambition. Now it is his life. I'm not in charge of my mouth anymore. That's me often. I don't get to gossip, flatter, cajole, condemn, lie, curse, rage, cheat, intimidate, manipulate, exaggerate or prevaricate anymore. Now it is not my mouth. It is his mouth. I get out of the driver's seat, I hand over the keys to Jesus, I am fully engaged. In fact, I'm more alive than ever before, but it's not my life anymore, it is his life. Have I invited Jesus along for the ride, or is he driving? Who is behind the wheel? Jesus is very clear on this point. There is no way for a human being to come to God that does not involve surrender. Surrender is not the same thing as passivity, he says. God's will for your life involves exercising creativity, making choices and taking initiative. Surrender does not mean being a doormat. It does not mean you accept circumstances fatalistically. Often it means you'll have to fight to challenge the status quo. It doesn't mean you stop using your mind, stop asking questions or stop thinking critically. Surrender is not a crutch for weak people who cannot handle life. But listen to this. Instead, surrender is the glad and voluntary acknowledgement that there is a God and it's not me. And when I look at Daniel, I look at a man who in exile understood that there is a God and it's not him. It's him. It's Yahweh, the Ancient of Days, as he calls him. And I want to say the first thing to having a faith that has what it takes is when we get out of the driver's seat and we hand over the keys of our life to God, to Jesus And he goes on in the chapter to make a great quote. And he says, if I live in the illusion that I am God, listen to this, I'll drive myself and everybody crazy with my need for control. When I surrender, I don't just let go of my will. I also give up the idea that I am in charge of outcomes. It's a powerful thing, isn't it? Say, no longer me. Paul says, I no longer live, but Christ who lives in me. And I think the first question i have going to ask for you today is whose glory are you living for? Are we really living for God's glory? We sing the songs. Are we really living for God's glory? Or are we living for our own happiness or our own contentment or our own security? If Daniel was, he could have had a much easier life than he had. Him and his three mates would never have faced the fiery furnace, would never have faced the lions, would never have faced the wrath of a king if they didn't understand that there is a God and it's not me. Second thing, faith that has what it takes resolves to honour their deepest values. You know, Daniel didn't work in church. Daniel worked in the world, as it were. Daniel worked in government. He was a civil servant. He worked for an incredibly ferocious boss. He worked in politics. He worked in all of this kind of area. And in verse 8, there's an incredible statement. "says But Daniel resolved not to defile himself. Now that word resolved in some translations says purposed or determined. Babylon was a tough place to follow God. Daniel had to compromise in certain areas. He, he let them change his name. He learnt the language, he learnt the customs, he sang their songs, but he wouldn't deny who he was. And when it came to it, there was one thing and he said, you know what, you're asking me to eat that food, I'm not going to do that because this speaks of my connection to God, this speaks of my real identity. And Daniel says, I will not cross that line. Now I think this is an incredibly powerful thing because you and I, every day of our lives, have to determine what we're going to do, what we're not going to do, what line we're not going to cross. Isn't that right? And the reality is that Daniel says in verse 8, he resolved, he wasn't going to cross a line. He was going to honour his deepest values. Now, you might say, it's easy for you to say that, Leon. You, live, you work in the church and everything's perfect in the church. Uh, you don't work with who I work with. No, you don't work in the church. You don't work in the real world. You don't work with a boss like I have. Well, can I say, none of you, none of you work with a boss like Daniel had. Because in 2 Kings 25, it says that Nebuchadnezzar in battle won and took the enemy king and he tied him up and he put his children in front of him and had the children killed so that the father could see it. And then he put the father's eyes out. You think you've got a tough boss. And that's the boss that Daniel worked under. That was the situation. But he came to a point where he said, you know what? I am not going to defile myself. I am going to honour my deepest values. We've got to draw the line somewhere. Let me tell you a story. See, if you get this, I get this, but you might not get this, and that's fine. But there's this um, biker, okay, Hells Angel kind of guy, and he's on a Harley Davidson. Harley Davidson, you know what Harley Davidson is? Yeah, big motorbike, at traffic lights. It's obviously in America. And he's, he's at the traffic lights, and he's revving it up, and he's feeling really big and strong and powerful. And there's a little old man on a lime green moped that pulls up besides him at the traffic light. And so you can see the kind of dynamics. There's a little old man on the lime green moped. And he's looking up at this biker, and he's looking at this bike, and he says, Wow, that's an amazing bike. And the biker goes, Yeah. Sure it's, And he says, could I have a look at it? And the biker kind of says, yeah, have a look at it. So he leans over really, really close, right up to the bike to have a look at it. And he says, wow, this is an incredible bike. I bet it goes really fast. The biker says, you bet it goes fast. The lights turn to green. The biker says, I'll show him. Opens up the throttle, zips straight off. In the, in the mirror, he can see this little old man on the lime green moped. He's like a speck in his wing mirror. But as he's driving along the road, feeling really big and really powerful, he sees that that speck is getting nearer and nearer and nearer and bigger and bigger and bigger. And all of a sudden, this little man on the lime green moped shoots past this biker on the Harley Davidson. biker's like, "Oh way, how can that happen? Opens the throttle up even more, I'm going to catch him. But as he's trying to catch him, the man, the little old man, starts coming back towards him. And he can't get out of the way and there's an almighty crash between the lime green moped and the biker on the Harley Davidson. And there's just stuff everywhere. Biker gets off uh, out of the wreck and goes at this little old man. He says, mate, what can I do? What can I do? Can I help you? Little old man says, could you unhook my braces from your bike, please? (laughs) Because you see, when he leant over, he got himself caught in this bike. And I wondered when I heard that story, how many times... You're all getting it now, aren't you? You, I have to explain it. It don't work if I have to explain it. I wonder how many times we lean over in life for a little look, and then we get ourselves tangled up. And as Christians, I wonder how many times we've leant over a little too close to have a look at something, and it's ended up as a wreck. And we've we've dishonored our deepest values. I wonder how many times we've said, I'm just going to have a look, and we've got hooked up. Perhaps the man who flirts in the office, never believing that that flirting could end up in adultery. The woman who allows envy to control her bit by bit by bit. The man who tweaks the accounts a little bit, because actually, actually, it's no harm really, is it? Just to shave the accounts a little bit here and there, because after all, I mean, the government have enough anyway, don't they? I didn't vote for them, so I don't need to do like they said, do I? The young man who watches late night TV, there's no harm, but it becomes an addiction. And the late night TV gets stronger and stronger and more addictive. The young woman that wants to fit into college says she's going to take whatever's offered in order for her to be accepted. We lean a little too close and we get tangled up and it ends up as a wreck. You know, I was brought up in quite a strict Christian environment. And we were told that to be in the world and not of it basically means you need to be separate. And that means you don't go to the cinema and you don't go to pubs and you don't go to this and you don't go to that. And You know, I kind of grow up, grew up thinking that's what it meant to be holy, that, what I don't do. And I don't think that is what it means to be holy. But nowadays, I think we're at the other extreme. Where actually it don't matter whatever you do. And we live in a Christian world and a Christian culture where sometimes we've forgotten our deepest values. And in the church, we can be passionate about worship. We can also be people who sleep around as much as anyone else. Where there's as many divorces in the church as outside of the church. Where there's as much debt in the church as outside of the church. Where there's much addiction to pornography in the church as outside of the church. Where there's much consumerism inside the church as out, inside as outside. You want to understand my heart with that. And somehow we've got to say, God, it may be a few of us, but God, we're going to be like Daniel. He resolved He resolved not to defile himself. I want to say to you, do not even have a look at something that will defile yourself. Don't even go close. You'll get hooked up. Before you know where you are, you'll end up in a wreck. You know, Daniel, there's more at stake here than food. Later, he's going to bow down to this this image of gold or he's going to face the furnace. He's going to stop praying or he's going to be in the lions. If you don't draw lines here, lines, you'll never draw them there. And it's the little decisions every day where we say, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to speak bad of that person. I'm not going to backbite. I'm not going to fudge the accounts. I'm not going to do those little things because later, God, you might test me with something big and I want to pass it. And Daniel resolved not to defile himself. So my question is, whose drum are you marching to? Whose drum are you marching to? Is it the culture or is it God? Number three, faith has what it takes, refuses to live by the lie of if only. Your life isn't working out as you thought. You feel far from home. What are you going to do? There's three responses. Hope, where you believe that life can get better, even in exile. There is despair, where you think nothing will ever change or work out. And then there is resignation, which is like halfway between hope and despair, where you just lower your expectations. But The danger is that we buy into the lie that if only life was different, it would be all right. You know that one? Well, if only I got married. Then you get married, if only I didn't get married. No. And if only this happened, or if only that happened, or if only my job would change, if only my health would change, and all this. And it's a lie that we buy into. You know, how we live our life is normal life. We live under a set of assumptions that life is working, right? Jobs working, families working, health is working. Then, of course, crisis comes, doesn't it? Lose our job, health situation. Then all of a sudden, life gets redefined. Here's the question that we need to ask. What can I build my life on that circumstances cannot rob me of? That's a deep question, isn't it? What can I build my life on that circumstances cannot rob me of? Because that's what really matters. See, if our life is built on our job, what happens when we lose our job? If our life is built, if our sense of well-being, if our sense of contentment is built on our health, what happens when our health suffers? What can we build our life on? that circumstances cannot rob us off. Have you heard of post traumatic stress? We've all got it, haven't we? Do you know what I mean? We've all got that. But actually now they're saying that there's something called post traumatic growth. There is a line of thinking that adversity or tough times can lead to growth. There's another line of thinking that the highest levels of growth cannot be realized without adversity. I believe that. I believe that post traumatic growth is something to be aspired Something to say, do you know what? We've had a crisis, we've had a tough time, but God, I want to grow through this. I want to grow through this. I want to be better through this. I want to be better through this change of circumstances, not worse. Now, adversity, tough time, does not automatically bring growth. It all depends on our response. Daniel refused to live by the lie of if only. Daniel said, this is my life. It is not a dress rehearsal. It's the real thing. It's easy to say, do you know what? God, if you get me back to Judah, then I'll live my life. But in Babylon, I'm just going to coast out until you get me back to where If only I was back in Jerusalem, everything would be all right. Daniel said, that's a lie. It's not a dress rehearsal. This is the real thing. This is the real deal. This is my life, and I'm going to live it. And I'm going to live it for God. Amen? I'm going to live it for God. Now, here's a quote. I think I put this in your notes out of the book. God isn't at work producing the circumstances you want. God is at work in bad circumstances producing the you that he wants. That's a phenomenal quote, isn't it? God is not at work producing the circumstances you want. Sometimes he does, but that's not his primary aim. God is at work in all circumstances producing the you that he wants. And I think Daniel looked at what was happening to him and he said, you know what, I don't like a lot of this. I wish it was different, but you know what, I'm going to embrace it. Because this is my life, isn't it? We don't get a second chance, and I'm going to live it for God. You with me still? Nearly there. Number four. Say number four. Number four. Having a faith that has what it takes commits to doing life with other people. Daniel's success was not just down to him and God. It was down to him and God and some really good friends. And I want to say, we're going to talk about this much more in a couple of weeks' time. I want to say friendship accountability, relationship, community, small groups are vital for us to becoming the kind of people that have a faith that has what it takes. Nelson Mandela, who unfortunately, as you know, couldn't make the um, opening of the World Cup because of that tragedy that happened to his granddaughter. But Nelson Mandela, when he was in Robben Island, off the coast of Cape Town there in the prison for 27 28 years Um, he wrote this in one of his diaries just listen to this he said the authority's greatest mistake was to keep us together for together our determination was reinforced we supported each other and gained strength from each other whatever we knew whatever we learned we shared and by sharing we multiplied whatever courage we had individually That is not to say we're all alike in our responses to the hardships we suffered. Men have different capacities and react differently to stress. Listen to this. But the stronger ones raised up the weaker ones and both became stronger in the process. Phenomenal, isn't it? We need each other. We need each other. And if you think that you are going to have a faith that has what it takes on your own, you are mistaken. Even the Lone Ranger had Tonto. Did you know that? And you are mistaken if you think you're going to do it on your own. Daniel was a phenomenal, phenomenal man of God. He needed other people. Jesus was a pretty phenomenal man of God as well. He needed other people too. So Jesus said, listen, this is my garden of Gethsemane. This is my tough time. This is my fiery furnace. This is my den of lions. Please, will you come with me and pray with me? Many of us would say, oh, no, I'll face it on my own. But Jesus didn't. Daniel didn't. Relationships are critical to our sense of well-being. Do you know what? Scientists and doctors believe that relationships are critical to the length of life that you live. Fact. Interestingly enough, Winston Churchill had a great marriage, apparently. Was connected deeply with friends and family. Lived to nearly 90, but had a terrible health regime ate, drank and smoked and ate all the wrong kind of foods. This is just a joke here. Uh, He was once asked, do you exercise? Churchill said this, only when I'm coffin bearer for my friends who died while they were exercising. (laughs) But there's this sense, and I'm not advocating that, but there's this sense, with even within someone like that, where you think he lived an awful life in loads of ways from a health point of view, which is not a recommendation. But what gave him a rich sense of life was his relationships. You can be as fit as you like. You can be have the most perfect diet. If you've not got good relationships, you're not living a great life. You're not living a great life. You can be as healthy as you like. It's relationships that give value to this life, isn't it? It's relationships that really, really matter. You know, it's true that people who join groups, good groups, extend their life. So perhaps a new motto for our life group should be join a group or die. I just think it's a good little option. And in fact, if you're a life group leader, can I say that we've got a life group leaders meeting tonight here at 6.30. It's really important that you're here, okay? We're in a big time of transition. But our groups, our small groups are so important to community. And they're not just small groups. You have to go much further than that. So if you are a life group leader or assistant group, please be here tonight at 6.30. It's so important. My question to you is, who's walking with you? Who's doing this life with you? Because actually, you're going to need it. You might think, well, I don't need it right now, but you don't know when a fiery furnace is around the corner. You don't know when the Lions is around the corner. You don't know that, and so we need people now. And the final thing is this. Faith that has what it takes remains to the end. I love this verse right at the end of chapter 1. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. 70 years later. Daniel remained there. Daniel had a faith and he's stuck in there right to the end. Isn't that phenomenal? One of my biggest, biggest heartaches right now is friends of mine who are no longer walking with God. It's my biggest, it wrecks me like you would not believe. Friends of mine who I've walked with, who I've wept with, who I've laughed with, who I've traveled with, who I've done life deeply with, who are not walking with God. And do you know what? You can track it back to where they lent a little bit too close. And they got their braces hooked up. And they forgot some of this stuff. And they ended up in a a wreck. And I look at Daniel, who remained, who remained for the duration of his life. I just love that. Rulers came and went, but Daniel stayed. Isn't that incredible? We need people in our culture who are going to stay faithful right to the end. Right to the end. And at the end of our lives, we're more effective spiritually than we were at the beginning. There's a few people in this room here who I could mention by name. I won't. But there's a few who I say, you are faithful. You stayed when we've had changes of leadership and changes of vision and we've had good times and bad times and you've stayed because you've been faithful, phenomenal people. Whether you leave a church or not, the big issue is you're going to remain faithful in your faith right the way through to the end. How can we remain with faith that has what it takes while we're in Shinar, while we're in Babylon, while we're in exile? All these principles that I've just gone through, these five things are really important. But there's something else that you need to understand because there's, there's somebody else at work in exile other than you. Did you know that? And just to give you a clue, just come with me as we look through chapter 1. But we'll go backwards and I'll just give you a clue and see if you can pick up this subtle clue as to who I'm talking about. Verse 17, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding. Verse 9, now God caused the official to show favour to Daniel. Verse 2, and the Lord delivered Jehoiakim. Who's, who else is at work? Subtle, isn't it? God. And Daniel experienced that in that place of exile, when he understood who's God and who's not, when he resolved to honour his deepest values, when he refused to live by the lie of if only, when he committed to walk with others, and when he remained to the end, he discovered that somebody else is at work in his exile. And that's God. God is with you. We heard that last week, didn't we? God is with you. Blessed are you. God is with you. When you're aching for Him, when you're longing for Him, when you're groaning for Him, when you're wanting to live life on God's terms, God is with you. What does that mean? It means you can live your life now. Now, right where you are in Shinar, in Babylon, in that tough job, in that tough situation, in that difficult scenario that you're in, you can live your life fully right now. Right now. You can be what God wants you to be right now. Not in the future, but right now. You can enlarge God's kingdom right now. God, if only this would change, then I'd really serve you. Come on. You can serve God right where you are, because that's where God has placed you, because God is at work where you are. You can experience God's power right now, right where you are. Isn't that phenomenal? So my question is, who is at work? in your life right now and do you recognise Him? And I want us to finish this morning by just reminding ourselves that God is at work within us wherever we are in our lives and I want us just to open up to His work and over the next few weeks, the next six weeks, it's going to be lots of times when we'll reflect, where we'll perhaps pray, where we'll respond but right now at the start of this series I want us just corporately to respond by saying, Lord, please be at work in my life right now. Let me know you. Let me recognise you. Let me not submit to this lie of if only life was different. But let me be all that you want me to be right where I am. Can we pray?